Blockchain Chatter, brought to you by Tier 1 People, leaders in fintech executive search. Welcome to Blockchain Chatter, the show where I connect with blockchain leaders for a bit of a chat. I'm your host, Dexter Cousins. In today's show, I'm joined by Ryan McCall, CEO of ZeroCap. ZeroCap's vision is for zero friction, borderless finance. They provide digital asset investment products and technology for wholesale and institutional investors. As a self-taught software engineer, Ryan has worked around financial services since 2006, designing complex risk and pricing engines for international insurance and wealth management companies like Marsh, Willis, IAG. I chat to Ryan about the year that was 2022 and what we can expect for the digital asset industry in 2023. Before we chat to Ryan, if you're new to the show, make sure to give us a follow and a subscribe. And if you are coming back, thanks for your support. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. Good to see you. Happy 2023. <laughs> Thank you. Same to you. I, you know, I only had to write 2023 for the first time a couple of days ago. <laughs> and I wrote 2022 first, of yeah. course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somebody today um, said the word ripper. And I had to point out that in 18 years of living in Australia, it was the first time I'd heard somebody say that word. Yeah, and then was it me? It was you, yeah, right. And then <laughs> literally thirty minutes after that, somebody else said "ripper." Oh, really? <laughs> so it must be that thing where probably people have been saying it all the time, and I've never noticed it. And now you know the cat's out the bag. I'm noticing it all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or maybe this is a new thing for 2023. Everyone's going to be saying it. Yeah, ripper. That's it. Let's make ripper the word of 2023. <laughs> well, Sounds great, good. great to have you with us, Ryan. Um, it was a, you know, 2022 was tough year for the industry, but a really good year for zero cap. And I wondered if you could share with our listeners, um, before we talk about, you know, some of the amazing stuff that you've done, just, just a little bit about zero cap and what the business is about. Sure. Uh, so we are, um, essentially a digital asset specialist that provides investment products and technology, uh, to wholesale investors and institutions. So um, I'm one of the co-founders and the CEO. Uh, I've got two other co-founders, John and Trent, and we founded the business back in 2017 uh, around the thesis that digital assets would go mainstream as an asset class. And in particular, we were thinking about institutional adoption, um, given the various backgrounds that we came from, and that was the gap in the market that we saw. Mm. And, uh, you know, we've had to play the long game in, in many ways. Um, the space has been largely unregulated for most of its history, although that's changing now, but we have uh, always sought to uh, act as a regulated firm or, until we actually got regulated. So held ourselves to a very high standard of compliance and governance and really looked to solve the sorts of problems that institutions would face when they want to access the asset class. So things like counterparty risk, the safety and security of the assets, uh, AML, CTF, and the volatility uh, of the asset class itself. So, um, yeah, it's been a pretty wild ride. Um, as you said, last year was, you know, there was a lot of ups and downs, but we had some big wins and we're pretty pumped about the year ahead. Awesome. Um, I guess, you know, in some of those big wins, you know, first of all, industry recognition, um, you know, big winners at the Blockies, winners at the Finneys as well but some really notable um, kind of projects that you've worked on as well. Could you, could you tell us a little bit about those projects? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so there are a few specific things that we worked on that really contributed to those awards. So we won um, Blockchain Organization of the Year and Corporate Project of the Year at the Blockchain Awards, the Blockies. Um, the corporate project was for our work with ANZ Bank on their $8DC stablecoin. So they were the first uh, bank in Australia to um, issue a, a stablecoin, um, one of the first few in the world to actually uh, issue a bank-issued stablecoin. And we helped them um, from a technology perspective, but also uh, with liquidity, custody, market making, you know, all the sorts of institutional services that we offer 
and also uh, helped connect them with clients that had a real world need for a stable coin like this. So the first transaction was with uh, the Victor Smorton Group, who's a very well-known family office out here in Australia. And they had uh, a liquidity event coming up from the sale uh, of an operating business. And they had 30 mil that they wanted to deploy into uh, the crypto ecosystem for, for investment. And they were doing that through ZeroCap. Now, the, the traditional or existing rails that you would use to do that uh, are very slow and expensive. So you'd have the transaction that would settle, cash would land in their bank account, they transfer that to us. Um, now, <laughs> without getting too into the weeds here, um, most crypto businesses in Australia are, are forced into a very small number of um, non-tier one banks. Um, some of those banks don't even support uh, international transfers um, for Aussie dollars. They're not fully hooked up on SWIFT. Uh, so we have to do an FX transaction to get Aussie dollars into US dollars into our US bank account. We settle from there with our crypto liquidity providers. We can buy crypto uh, and then we can get that back to the Victor Morgan group. So that, that process would have normally taken, you know, it's like a T plus three, maybe T plus five transaction. Mm. It's quite expensive because there's a couple of legs of FX. Uh, but using ANZ stablecoin, they could effectively go straight from fiat to crypto, uh, sorry, crypt, fiat to crypto, and then they're they're in the crypto ecosystem, and, mm. and we can go from that stablecoin directly into other crypto products because um, we were actually making a market on on that cryptocurrency. So that was a, a big project. It was a, a meaningful sum of money as well, thirty million dollars. Um, and there's been some other projects with with ANZ since, like uh, we use their stablecoin in a tokenized carbon credits transaction, um, which was which was very interesting. Um, some of the other awards that we won, um, there was the Finder Award for the best innovation in digital currency, and that was for our smart beta fund. So one of the problems in crypto is the volatility, which I mentioned earlier. It's no secret that uh, you know it's a very volatile asset class. The strategy we've got in this fund is to reduce the volatility to match that of equity markets. Um, and the value proposition or the pitch here is you can get the diversification benefits of having Bitcoin in your portfolio without the risk of you know an 80% drawdown like mm -hmm. we've just seen. Um, so really, it's, it's an institutional product like we're pitching this as super funds uh, and that sort of thing. Um, and the way that we do that is by rebalancing between Bitcoin and USDC or effectively cash. So when Bitcoin's more volatile, we move uh, more into cash. When it's less volatile, we move more into Bitcoin and, and that compresses the volatility of the asset. But it actually outperforms Bitcoin on a risk-adjusted basis. So we capture more of the upside than we do of the downside. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, we won an award for that. Um, so yeah, look, a, a couple of big wins. It was, um, it was a really good year. Um, ASX is another big project that we've been working on for, for quite a while, since the end of 2021, really. Um, so, so I wanted to kind of drill down on that because people will hear ASX and say, oh, but I thought they'd disbanded that project. You've been mm -hmm. working on something different to the chess settlement um, program. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So the ASX have built a a DLT or distributed ledger technology as a service um, infrastructure. And they want um, app developers, custodians, fund managers, market makers, you know, registries, whoever to, to come and build on their platform to, to kind of create value in their ecosystem. Uh, and they approached us at the end of 2021, originally looking for a digital asset custodian, which is one of the services that, that we offer. And we did a couple of proof of concepts um, just to show how that could be done. Uh, so we bridged assets from an external public blockchain, Ethereum, onto their internal private blockchain and ran some very simple, uh, I guess, um, you know, trading, clearing and settlement type transactions. Um, but the, the bigger picture or, or the bigger 
plan, I guess, is to enable the ASX to be a marketplace for digital assets. And that's um, beyond, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum and, and other, you know, I guess native crypto tokens, but things like tokenized equities, tokenized bonds, um, you know, any sort of property potentially could be traded on there. So our, our custody infrastructure supports any sort of tokenized asset. Um, and, and as a uh, market maker, we can actually make a market on any of those types of assets. So that's what we've been working on with them um, for, for a while now. And the chest replacement, um, yeah, the intention was for that to be built on the same underlying technology infrastructure. But you can think of that really as an app that's sitting on the infrastructure. Yeah. And they've, they've put that app on ice um, while they review the findings yeah. from that extension report and figure out what to do next. But yeah, that's very separate from what we're mm. working on. They haven't put their blockchain initiatives on hold altogether. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, you know, kind of highlights for me last year was um, the, the Singapore FinTech Festival. And they, you know, the, 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 the key theme there, blockchain, digital assets, Web3, it was kind of resounding, you know, yes, that we're absolutely supportive of those techno technologies and see them as the future. Whereas crypto kind of, you know, the, the trading and, and speculative nature of it they, they seem to be fairly, you know, well against. Um, <clears throat> I, th I think it was only four days later that we had the FTX collapse when, when coming back, um, which I guess, you know, kind of cemented for them their, their view. But what, it hasn't really waned my enthusiasm of the space. If anything, it's kind of, you know, it, it's crystallized really what the opportunities are. And, you know, particularly around trade finance and a lot of the things that you've talked about you know, where you're talking about huge sums of money, there's a really strong use case for, you know, kind of cross-border transactions, digital tokenization of, you know, significant assets as well. What, what do you kind of get the sense from an institutional perspective as to the potential damage that has been done by FTX? Yeah, so I think you're, you're spot on with your, um, your view on, how MAS in Singapore is thinking about crypto or digital assets or, or, or blockchain. Like they're not keen for retail to really participate at, at this stage. Um, there's quite a lot of investment going in on, on the institutional side. But yeah, to, to your question about what impact has FTX had, for, you know, I guess on the institutional side, it definitely spooks people, you know. So we're, we're dealing with all the major banks here in Australia and several of them abroad as well. The good thing is that um, it hasn't really slowed anything uh, for those core group of believers within those institutions that are actually driving um, adoption of, of digital assets. Uh, but, you know, at, at the board level where you've got people who may not be um, believers, true believers yet, um, you know, it does raise some eyebrows and, you know, the question gets asked, is this really something that, that we want to be near? But I can say, you know, within each of these major financial institutions, like I said, you've got a core group of believers who really understand the technology and want to drive adoption and drive efficiency in their business, create new products, reach new markets. Um, and you know, the, the, the way that they have to go about it is, I guess, get an executive sponsor and make a pitch to the board, uh, usually around some specific use case that can be commercialized, uh, get some funding, go and build a thing, prove, prove the use case, you know, prove the commercial value and get the funding, uh, sorry, increase funding, grow the team and so on and so on it goes. So, we haven't, like most of the banks in Australia have not taken their foot off the gas as far as blockchain initiatives are con concerned. But I think it'll be quite a while before we see banks actually offering crypto assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum and, mm -hmm. and the like to retail customers. Obviously, CBA had their pilot um, last year for, for a little while, which they 
pulled back, which I think is indicative of, um, you know, where the banks and the regulators are at with yeah. offering these sorts of products or assets to, to retail investors. Um, but yeah, you know, the, I guess the, what we see from our perspective is institutions are really looking at, at how to use the technology um, to, there's like this offensive and defensive strategy, right? And the offensive side of it, like I said, is create new products, reach new markets, drive efficiency, instant settlement, reduce counterparty risk, all these benefits that are inherent to the technology. And then the defensive side of it is, oh, well, I know all my competitors are doing it, so we better do it too. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, but it's funny because it's almost like a race to be second. Yeah. No one, yeah. no one really <laughs> wants to be first. They don't want to be last it's, either. It's everything, right? Whether it's CD or, you know, whatever it is, I think there's always somebody, you know, they're waiting for the first mover and everybody's interested, but, you know, it kind of, it takes that first, that person to go, or that business to go first, right? And then it happens very quickly after that. Yeah, totally. But, you know, we've already seen, you know, the banks here in Australia CBA issued a bond on the blockchain like back in 2017 yeah. or something like that. Um, ANZ launched their stable coin last year. So, you know, things, things are heating up. I think this year we'll see some fairly significant announcements yeah. uh, from the banks around here. Obviously, capital markets everywhere have, have tightened up. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of, you know, the tech industry as a, as a whole is really kind of suffering at the minute. We've got a lot of economic pressures around things like energy, cost of living crisis. Whenever I've been, you know, I've, I've recruited through several downturns now, the, the trends that I've seen, Ryan, has always been the focus shifts from kind of growth and you know, a lot of diversification to then focus businesses focusing on the stuff that they do really well, but looking at ways to reduce cost. And usually that's technology and people um are you kind of sensing that given the you know the, the tough economic conditions that we're coming into that there's going to be more pressure on banks you know you, you talked there about the fees that are involved in these types of transactions i can imagine and i know that you know when we i was in singapore there was the announcement i think it was um jp morgan and that the transaction that had been made and the reason that they did it on I think Polygon was because they wanted to avoid gas fees on Ethereum network. So we're seeing as kind of like already there's this really kind of self-conscious, you know, a price conscious approach. Do you think that's going to put pressure on um, and, and kind of maybe increase the adoption of digital assets? Yeah, look, I, I think um, there's always a race to the bottom on fees Yeah, in everything, yeah. right? Um, but efficiency is, uh, definitely one of the major value propositions for the technology and why institutions like banks are taking a look at it in the first place. Um, having said that, like they are pretty slow moving beasts and they're fairly conservative as well. So they're not going to charge into this. Um, it's going to. It's going to take some time, particularly here in Australia. You know, there was a banking royal commission not that long ago, and some of the banks got whacked with yeah. huge fines, and I think they're still feeling that. And um, so, uh, you know, there's there's a bit of experimentation happening at the moment, uh, but I think like banks are still looking for that killer use case um, or the killer app, you know, and. Uh, the, the funny contradiction or paradox there is they're not really going to realize the true commercial value from these initiatives until they actually release it into the wild. Yeah. You know, the, the way that conservative institutions operate is they want to do things in a very controlled private environment, um, which, which is kind of contradictory to the whole ethos of blockchain really. Um, but you don't get to see 
you know, the, the, the true power or benefits of something like this in, until you get it out there and, mm-hmm. and it's adopted, you know, like stable co- non-bank issued stable coins like um, Tether or USDC are a great example of that. Um, I think if, if banks are not willing to put their stable coins on a public ledger, they're just not going to get the same kind of adoption. Mm. Um, but yeah, as I said, I know there are a number of, uh, call them experiments or use cases in the mix at the moment. And obviously you've got the um, RBAs, CBDC pilot that's happening at, at the moment as well, which is going to be quite interesting. Um, so we're, we're involved in a few use cases. I think there were about 160 submissions for proposed use cases um, last year and a handful of those have been selected to progress through to a, a pilot stage. Even I think even if the CBDC itself uh, doesn't become a thing, at least not in the short term, I think it will take qu- quite some time. What it has done is really catalyzed um, the industry and there's a lot of collaboration happening between crypto native firms and um, you know, the larger centralized institutions like banks and the ASX that I mentioned and, and that sort of thing. So I think there'll be a lot of benefit that we get out of that pilot. Cool. Um, so I, I guess one of the other kind of things that's really, um, I guess, being a challenge for the industry is essentially credibility. And I've seen this exactly the same thing in fintech kind of early days where You'd have, you know, a dude in a man bun rocking up to the regulators, telling them how they were going to uh, Uberize banking and, you know, do, you know, do all this funky stuff with the banking industry and not really kind of recognizing or, or appreciating or respecting, um, you know, the kind of regulatory challenges and licenses that were acquired, et cetera. And I can't help but think that, you know, blockchain has, has suffered a little bit from that as well. Um, Given the background that you've got, how have you found that that's helped you in those discussions to, you know, with banking execs to actually get them on board and to, you know, steer the, this from a conversation actually out in the wild, real use cases for the technology? Yeah, well, I think first and foremost, you're just not even going to have that conversation um, if you don't respect the regulatory uh, environment. And like I said, banks in particular are inherently conservative. And something that we've done um, from the very outset, uh, you know, we always figured that the industry would get regulated and regs are on the way um, here in Australia. It's already regulated to an extent in, in places like Singapore and the UK. Um, we actually deal in regulated financial products. So we deal in derivatives and we've also got an asset management business. So we've got a few different funds, um, structured as unit trusts here in Australia. They are regulated financial products. So even though the underlying asset is crypto, I guess the wrapper around it is, is something that is, is regulated. So uh, we sit under um, a wholesale AFSL here, which means you know, we can deal in regulated financial products with wholesale clients non-retail. So even though the crypto as an asset class is broadly unregulated, our business is actually regulated. And that means that we have to lift the bar on compliance and, and governance to a standard that is just far beyond what's actually required in, in an unregulated market. And um, yeah, that experience has definitely served as well in the conversations that we've had with banks and the like. And we've brought a lot of people into the business from that traditional finance background as well. You know, yeah. um, Managing director of Deutsche Bank in New York, uh, who used to run the hedge fund business, is our head of trading. Um, the ex-head of um, emerging markets at Westpac is our treasurer. Um, we've got directors and partners from Optiva, Standard Chartered, Macquarie, ANZ, like all, all over the place. Um, you know, so we, we've also got the hardcore techie propeller heads here yeah. <laughs> as well, right? And, and you do need both to, to be able to, to do this well, you know, to really understand the technology uh, and understand where the value lies. Mm. But then how do you bridge that to 
you know, traditional markets and understanding the problems and inefficiencies um, that those markets yeah. have, the infrastructure and also the regulatory environment. So bridging those two things is basically what we what we do here. Um, but yeah, I, I know like with ANZ Bank, for example, you know, the only reason we got a foot in the door in the first place uh, was the fact that we were regulated. Mm. Um, and I think we'll, you know, this year in Australia, I, I think we'll start to see um, a clearer shape of what the regs are actually going to look like. You know, there are a number of exercises happening in the background at the moment um, across ASIC and Treasury and in Parliament and the like. Uh, so we've got some idea of what it's going to look like, but uh, yeah, that's going to get sharpened up this year. Awesome. Now, um, I just missed the perfect opportunity to make a seamless transition into the second part of the, the discussion, which is around the, the business and leadership and just your experiences of being an entrepreneur. And you touched just before on some of the people that you've brought into the business and What's been fascinating for me from a, a, a kind of human capital perspective over this last you know, 10, 12 years, following and, and working with startups has been to see you know, these kind of very, very different worlds of a you know, large financial institution and a fintech startup or a blockchain startup. And that just, you know, it's like a paradox, right? Of you know, <laughs> and and you know, we've we've got data as well to to also support you know the hypothesis that somebody coming from a large financial institution into a business of your size, usually I think it's nine out of ten times that person will leave within the first six months. How have you you know what what have you kind of noticed you know bringing people from those environments into a business the size of zero cap? And, and how have you managed to you know, kind of, I guess, you know, get the best out of people in that environment? And what are the, some of the things that you look for? Yeah, so we, at the moment, our team is about 70-odd staff. Um, had a fair amount of growth. Like at the beginning of 2022, we were, um, sorry, beginning of 2021, we were about 15 end of 2022, 2021, we were 45 and now we're about 70. Um, you know, as far as how we attract and retain people, it's a relatively small industry. Um, you know, I don't know if this is a great answer, but there aren't a lot of solid options for people that, that want to get into the industry. Like if you know anything about, the asset class or the technology, you probably don't want to go and work at a bank. Yeah. Right. You, you want to come and work for a startup or, or, you know, a mid sized business or, or a scale up, um, you know, where you can actually have a bit more of a, a meaningful impact. Yeah. Um, haven't, haven't said that though, Ryan, I think pretty much everybody that you would ask would say, yeah, that's me. I'd much prefer to work in a startup. I get shit done, I don't, you know, and then when they get put in the environment, you know, saying it and doing it are two very, very different things. How have you kind of seen people make that transition? What do What do you think have been some of the qualities that you know people have have possessed that have enabled them to make that shift rather than just talking about it of being able to actually do it? Yeah, look, it's a it's a really important point um, because it is a very different environment. To working at a, you know, a gigantic investment bank, or something like that. I guess some of the qualities that we look for are, are some kind of entrepreneurial experience or, or background or skill set or something like that. Even within a large institution, you know, you can still be creative and innovative and build new products and launch new products and open into new markets and all that kind of thing. So that's definitely something that we look for, um, there are fairly specific roles that we've hired for, uh, like options traders or someone that's got experience managing treasury or compliance, um, and all that sort of thing. So, you know, there are, each of those have a very defined set of skills that, yeah. that we're looking for. Um, and, 
I would say, like, over the last year, year and a half, really over two years, I would say in particular, um, the crypto has been you know, very exciting, very attractive. Uh, so we really haven't had too much of an issue in attracting talent. Um, you know, and the profile of the business has helped as well with the sorts of projects that we've had, the partnerships that we've formed, the awards that we've won, all, all that sort of thing. But, you know, I will say one of the things that we are conscious of is hiring people that are what I would say institutionalized. Yeah. Because in a, in a big organization, you can get away with doing not very much work, <laughs> right? As long as your bum's on the seat, you sort of punch in, punch out, um, you know, you can kind of be invisible. So, you know, that's, that's why I mentioned before we, we like to see some evidence of people being entrepreneurial to an extent, yeah. even within those, you know, those organizations. Um, but I think it's becoming increasingly apparent, particularly with the market that we're in at the moment, that a passion for the technology or what the technology represents is actually quite important. Um, you know, we have seen that there have been a few people that have come from a TradFi, like a purely traditional finance background, didn't really know anything about crypto that have come in here. And, you know, we're in a, we're in a bear market at the moment, yeah. you know, like the industry has been imploding over the last year. And if you don't really love it, I think that can be pretty tough. Yeah. Um, and as a business, you know, strategically, we've even made a bit of a shift um, to service more like what I would call crypto native customers or, 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 you know, clients that have already got some exposure to digital assets, um, less of a focus on the private wealth family yeah. office type clients. Um, so yeah, uh, having people in the business that, you know, resonate with that is, is definitely important. Awesome. Um, you mentioned there two years ago, you were 15 people, you know, 75. Um, what have you learned about yourself as a, a leader on that journey? What are some of the kind of key lessons, you know, and, and things you might do differently if you had your time again? Yeah, that's, um, <laughs> That's a difficult question. You know, like when, when the business I was yet asked the easy ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, you know, when the business was smaller, you have a lot of time to think and plan and be very deliberate, uh, about what you're doing a lot more structured. Um, when you're in a growth phase, um, you know, when you're in a bull market and, customers are kicking down the doors to buy your product, you are so busy being externally focused and servicing customers that you kind of lose um, a lot of that structure and planning and all the rest of it. Um, so, uh, you know, one thing that I have been I've, been, I've been conscious of that fact, right? And I've been trying to take a step back you know, pretty regularly and have a bit of a breather and just think and plan. Mm -hmm. And it's actually amazing. One of the guys on our board, Pete Edwards said this to me recently, and I, I totally agree. It's amazing when you actually write something down and you plan it, how often it comes true. Right. And I, I heard another sort of, you know, anecdote like that, or you know, a, a quote recently. Um, if you don't, have a if you don't have a plan to succeed then you're planning to fail yeah. or something like that right yeah. um, and, and it's so true like you you're just flying by the seat of your pants um, and that can only get you so far until you you hit um, a tough market like mm. we're in at the moment and and that planning and diligence and you know scenario planning is is really really important yeah um, there's a, there's a lot of stuff though, right? For entrepreneurs, it's really difficult because if you go on Twitter or LinkedIn or anywhere, 
the amount of bullshit that it's kind of these memes, right? Like if you've got a plan B, you're never going to succeed because you've just got to be committed to plan A. And it's kind of, <laughs> what? Yeah. What, kind of, what? Like, I mean, what, are you running a business here or are you just like, you know, filling yourself full of shit, right? It's like, yeah. <laughs> and it's, totally. it's kind of, what, what, what do you do? You know, and where do you go to get sound advice, inspiration, kind of sanity checks? You know, where, what have been the things that you've kind of learned over this five year, you know, six year journey that, you know, you, you've kind of, rather, other than just taking the time for yourself, you know, kind of get real solid, you know, valuable advice. Yeah. Um, I think it changes at different stages in the business. Like you got to do what's right for you at the time. Yeah. You know, as you say, there's, there's just so much advice out there. There's information overload and, you know, sometimes you can, you can read some of that stuff and it doesn't resonate and you sort of think, shit, what, what's wrong with me? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, I mustn't be thinking about this the right way because I don't get it or I don't agree or, or, or whatever. But yeah, one thing that I have learned is you've, you've got to find the right people for the right stage in the journey. Yeah. And we've had, I would say, I don't know, there's like maybe five to 10 different advisors or mentors or something like that, that we've had or, or, or I've had um, over the history of the business. And you, f- you feel it when there's a connection um, and, it, and it comes, it, it goes both ways. The other person sort of feels it too. Like, yeah, I can, re- mm. I, I get where this guy is coming from. I understand what he's going through. You know, I've been there, whatever. Yeah. And you, and you connect for a certain period of time and then you might outgrow them. It's like when you yeah. go and see a counselor, yeah. right? I don't know if you've ever done that, but you usually go in there for a very specific purpose and you, you, you talk about it and it might last a few months and then yeah. you've, you've talked about it. You've, you've had your growth, you've learned whatever yeah. lessons you needed to learn and then, and then you move on. Um, so like there is no one size fits all. Yeah. Uh, and, and that goes for, you know, the sorts of quotes that you were yeah. talking about there or, so I think a, it also goes B, for, for people in the business as well, right? Like the people that you had early days are not necessarily going to be the right people when you're 150 people or 300 people or a thousand people. And for them as well, you know, they kind of, Hey, this isn't what I signed up to. You know, the business gets too big. And I think, you know, one of the issues I've seen a lot of leaders grapple with is, you know, for some reason, kind of have it in our heads that if somebody leaves the business after 18 months, or 12 months, it's a bad thing. If they've delivered the outcomes and everybody's happy, I think it's actually a great thing, right? It's like, it's actually, it's a lot more kind of, you know, um, productive than having somebody stay three years and only get off the, the, the output from them. Um, For sure. we, we've seen a it's lot, not- right. With some of our clients that somebody's worked with them early days and then five years later, you know, they've gone off to the US or whatever, five years later, come back and join the business. And it's, you know, they're an even better um, kind of asset than when they left. Yeah. It's not always so black and white or easy to identify kind of that optimal point of where someone has delivered, you know, the, 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 the right amount of value that you mm. uh, want from them or that they want to give before they, move on. Uh, and I guess it's different for different people, but I'm, I can be quite emotional, I guess, in the sort of connection that I have with people. And when, when people want to leave, you know, that, that really sucks if you've got a personal connection with them. Yeah. Do you, you know? kind of take it personally as in, you know, it's almost like a you know, slight to you and, you know, you kind of feel that you've done something wrong or what could I be doing better? You know, a bit like if your girlfriend kind of turns around and says, hey, it's not you, it's me. It's not working <laughs> out. I'm going to phone someone else. Yeah. I, I don't take it personally because you can't please everyone. Like you just can't. Yeah. You know, and that's just life. Um, so 
you know, you, you touched on this. How, how do you, how do you, how do you distance yourself though? Right. Because having your own business, pouring everything into it, you know, the sacrifices that you make, the sacrifices that you make with your family and time and all of that stuff. And you've built this business, right. Which is really doing some amazing stuff. And it's yours, right? Like it's, you, you've built it, right. It's your baby. How do you kind of, cause a lot of founders find this really difficult, right. Is to distance themselves emotionally and kind of detach from, you know, the absolute kind of, you know, emotion that you have of, of this business, right. And the kind of the absorption that it has of you, um, to then you know, kind of be able to not feel hurt when, it gets rejected or, you know, kind of people decide it's not for them anymore. It's a hard question to answer, but all, all I can say is that you just have to, yeah. right? Like for your own sanity and also for the sake necessity of the growth. is the mother of invention. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like I, I know this is something that a lot of founders grapple with is to, hand over responsibility um, and detach themselves from certain parts of the business. But you just have to, because otherwise you stay in the weeds and you're, you're sacrificing uh, the growth of the business. You know, you've, you've got to keep a, you know, you have to be the, the glue in a way between different teams and people in the business, but you've got to have a bird's eye view of, of what's going on. And if you're, if you're too stuck in the weeds, you, you lose that. Uh, yeah. And, it, and it's ultimately going to be detrimental. So even though, uh, you know what, sometimes you hand over that responsibility and things may not be done exactly the way that you would do it. Um, and you know, you might feel squeamish about that or kind of cringe that something's going out there into the world and it's not quite, you know, the, the way would, I would want it done. Like you do that enough times and you do just kind of come to accept it, yeah. I, I think. Um, and yeah, yeah, you have to take the same kind of approach with people coming into the business and, and leaving um, when it's not right anymore. It's not right. And that's cool. It's no hard feelings. Like I said, it can still kind of suck from the personal connection mm. perspective, but ultimately it's the best thing for everyone. Yeah. Um. Now we're on a new year, a new beginning. Um, you know, last year was a tough year, so I don't really want to talk about that much more. <laughs> but when you look, you look you. to 2023, what's got you excited about the whole blockchain, digital asset, Web3 space? Um, and are there any businesses or kind of areas of innovation that you, you've kind of really got a watchful eye on with a you know, bit of anticipation? Yeah, so... I think tokenization is the the big theme uh, in in digital assets. Um, you know, we we saw a lot of hype around NFT yeah. artworks in particular, yeah. and uh, the the metaverse. And I mean, you get this with any sort of new technology. You get this hype cycle um, where there's a you know, exuberance and a lot of money thrown around uh, and people riding the FOMO train. Um, and then, you know, the whole thing collapses. But out the back of that, you do get real value. Yeah. Um, the same thing happened with the internet, the same thing happened with mobile technology, the same thing's going to happen with NFTs. But where, you know, NFT artwork, like artwork is a legitimate use case for, for NFTs, but... I think uh, where the real value lies yeah. is in, uh, you know, real world, other real world assets, like I was saying before, whether it's private equity or might be tokenized carbon credits or, um, you know, there's bonds on the blockchain, there's funds that are being tokenized. I mean, you, you, think, of you think of the amount of value that in assets in the world that is locked in that you can't access, right? Or if you want access, there's a lot of things that you've got to do and a lot of time that it takes to actually realize or be able to extract some of that value. This, you know, I agree, right, with tokenization. It's like instant. You think of trade finance, 
you know, where you can be talking about 90 days to get, you know, money to be able to get goods through customs and stuff like that, right? It's, it's kind of crazy, right? Um, but this is unfortunately the world that we're still living in. And a lot of the clients that you work, work with, you know, they've still got MS-DOS systems for doing trade finance, right? And green screens. I mean, it's, it's crazy, right? Yeah, it's crazy. It, it works, but it is kind of crazy. You know, one of the things that's incredibly frustrating about working in the industry is we're using this technology that has all these amazing benefits like, you know, instant or near instant settlement. Um, but we're still bound to the traditional rails and infrastructure, yeah. which slow everything down. So, you know, we're thinking about the, the year ahead to, to your point and things I'm excited about is that decoupling and making things truly native yeah. on, on the blockchain. An example of that is the transaction that we ran, I think I mentioned it before last year with ANZ Bank uh, and the Victor Morgan Group where they purchased tokenized carbon credits. Now that's a, a transaction that would normally take place completely off chain, um, you know, using fiat money to, to buy uh, accus but this is something that happened near instantly um you know there's better liquidity there's reduced counterparty yeah. risk there's lower costs it's like this it just makes so much sense um and we are working on a number of use cases and i know there's plenty of others in the mix with some major financial institutions to bring more of these sorts of products yeah. to life so you know i think Ultimately, we'll see the tokenization of everything. And uh, I think this will be the year um, that we start to see, you know, some real commercial value mm. coming from this technology. You know, we're, we're in an environment, uh, you know, like I said earlier, we're, we're in a bear market um, for crypto, right? So, you know, it, it's the, the talk is not so much about the price of the asset it's more about we're in build mode yeah you know what are we doing with the the technology or well, that's certainly what institutions are focused on anyway yeah. and, and i think as far as um regions or jurisdictions as well singapore which which you mentioned is really exciting um you know they've got support from the regulator there's a lot of investment in the space um a, a lot of investment just a lot of money flowing in generally, yeah. um, you know, out of Hong Kong and into Singapore. There's a lot of family offices setting up there. Um, the Zero Cap is uh, intending to set up an office there this year. So we, we set up in London last year. And, yeah, we're looking to open an office in, in Singapore this year. Uh, so that's kind of where we want to be. And what other cool things have you got planned for 2023, Ryan? So we're working on a few things for ourselves. Uh, so we've got a bit of a rebrand going on at the moment, which is which is pretty cool. We're excited about that. Uh, we're also doing a revamp of our portal, um, our wealth portal, where our customers, uh, it's sort of the main hub for all their trading activity and, and custody, uh, launching some new products, particularly for institutions around the treasury side and, and NFTs. Um, we're working on a few big projects for, for clients as well. I mentioned the CBDC pilot that we're working on and also the ASX. So there's some big stuff happening there. Um, and we've got some other family office clients that want to do some really interesting things. Like um, there's one that's tokenizing a commercial property, uh, another that has a commercial property fund. Um, so rather than uh, buying units in a fund, you're, you're actually buying um, non-fungible tokens, um, which represent a debt instrument and the yield will actually be like airdropped right. um, directly in, into your wallet, um, which is really cool. Uh, there's some tokenization of carbon credits, tokenization of water entitlements, uh, which is something that I haven't seen done before. Um, other sorts of debt instruments like bonds. So, um, yeah, they are all pretty significant projects which will be launching this year. Uh, we've also got some conversations happening with other 
banks and exchanges uh, internationally as well and hoping to have something uh, materialized there this year as well. Awesome. And if anybody's out there listening, potentially interested in the Zero Cup solution, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Brian? Uh, Zerocap.com, right? You can find everything there. Um, We are very active on LinkedIn. Um, We have a weekly uh, newsletter that gets published, the weekly crypto market wrap. You can sign up for that on our website, um, again, at zero.com. We're also on Twitter, but uh, yeah, go go to the website and that's where you'll find everything. We've got a lot of um, awesome talent listening to this podcast as well. If anybody's interested in joining the Zero Cap Rocket Ship, what's the best way for them to find out about careers with you? Yeah, so careers at zerocap.com, careers at zerocap.com is the um, email address. Um, you know, we usually post our job ads up or for, for big ones um, on LinkedIn, uh, but we're always open to applications from talented people. Um, you know, particularly given that we want to grow our presence in the UK and, as I mentioned, Singapore as well, uh, but we have a very strong institutional focus. So experience in um, structured products, structured solutions is something that, that we're really trying to focus on at the moment. Um, and anyone that's got, you know, true institutional crypto experience, Hard to come by because crypto just hasn't been around for that long. Um, but you know, there's been a lot of uh, redundancies and layoffs and downsizing um, over the last six or so months. So I know that there's a lot of talent out there, and uh, yeah, we, we'd love to hear from those people. Awesome. Well, right, and it's been great to have you on the show. Congrats on all the big achievements of, of last year, and super excited to see you know kind of. How you how things pan out over 2023 thank you mate appreciate it good to chat thanks for listening folks you can connect with me dexter cousins on linkedin and twitter if you're coming back thanks so much for your support and if you're new to the show make sure to follow us and leave a review until the next episode stay safe this show is presented by tier one people leaders in fintech executive search. We find world-class talent to build world-class fintech ventures and you can find us tier1people.com.